Well, friends, the great cornerstone of Christianity on which its truthfulness either stands or falls is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The glory of the resurrection is that it was God the Father putting his stamp of approval upon the person and work of Jesus. The resurrection is God the Father's validation of the words and work of Jesus, saying in effect that this is my son, the anointed one, my Messiah, the only savior of sinners. But the resurrection of Jesus is only the stupendous event that it is if Jesus had really died. Did Jesus really die on the cross? There are those who have propounded theories that he didn't, you know, that he only swooned and nonsense like that. But the proof of Jesus' death, which in turn points to his, the validity of his resurrection, is that he was buried. Jesus Christ was buried. And so when Paul seeks to give us a distillation of the gospel, the gospel in a nutshell, he includes the fact that Jesus was buried. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you, you Corinthians, and to all Christians in all time, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The burial of Jesus points to the reality of the death of Jesus, which then gives credence to the glorious resurrection of Jesus. Well, this morning we come in our study of Mark's gospel to the burial of Jesus Christ. We've already contemplated his suffering, which reached its pinnacle in his suffering upon the cross. We've studied his death, at least as Mark records it, the cry of abandonment from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the implications of that. We looked at the fact that God the Father spoke on Golgotha, not with words, but with visible signs. Mark records two of them, that pall of darkness that shrouded the land when Jesus was being crucified the last three hours, and the the veil in the temple being ripped in two, indicating that now through the death of Jesus, we have direct access to fellowship with God through the cross. And last week, we looked at four of the witnesses to the crucifixion and their various responses to it. But now, the sufferings of Jesus Christ are over. The agonies that he endured on the cross, both in his body and in his soul, are completed. He has breathed his last, expiring not with a sigh of resignation, not with a groan of defeat, but as we saw with a loud cry of victory, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. All is quiet now on Mount Calvary, except perhaps for the voices of a few soldiers that are finishing up their work. Most of the crowd has disappeared, peeling off in small groups or perhaps as individuals. And the body of Jesus of Nazareth now hangs limp and lifeless on the cross. The other two crucified on that day, however, still are showing signs of life. And the Jews, therefore, concerned that their bodies might still be hanging on the cross as the Sabbath approached, asked 
that according to the Roman practice, that their legs be broken. And so you need not turn there, but I'm just going to read from John 19, beginning at verse 31. There we read, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified before him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. And so with a sickening thud, the legs of the two robbers are broken. Their bodies quiver and go limp. And death comes to them as it has come earlier to the man on the middle cross, the man with the inscription over his head that said, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, friends, what happens next? What happens next is that God raises up a man to provide an honorable burial for his son. God the Father had ordained the humiliation and suffering of his son, and Jesus the Son had agreed to subject himself to that. But God would not subject his son to any more humiliation than was necessary for the redemption of his people. And so, amazingly, from a most unexpected quarter, God makes provision for the body of his son to be given a decent and proper burial, and there to await the next great event in the calendar of redemption, which is his resurrection. So let's read about the burial of Jesus, Mark 15, verses 42 to 46. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought or bought rather a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And we'll stop there. We're going to see three things. We're going to see Joseph of Arimathea's request for the body of Jesus, Pilate's release of the body of Jesus, and then Joseph's preparation and burial of the body of Jesus. First, Joseph of Arimathea's request for the body of Jesus. Again, verses 42 and 43 When evening had come already, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. First thing I want to note here about this request is the propriety of the request. So this man comes forward and asks for the body of Jesus. His intention is clear in the context. He wants to give Jesus a proper burial. Now consider how appropriate that is. 
Friends, the Bible consistently presents burial as the proper way that God wants the body of those who have died to be disposed of. In the Old Testament, the patriarchs and their wives were buried. Later on, the kings of Israel and Judah were buried. We even read that God himself buried his servant Moses. We read in Deuteronomy 34, 6, and he, God, buried him, Moses, in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. You see, burning a body, a dead body, was regarded as a curse. Remember what was done to uh, Achan. Achan was the man who violated the ban, and as a result, he was cursed, he and his entire family and his possessions. And we read these words in Joshua 7, 24 and following. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. The burning with fire was a symbol of God's judgment upon Achan and his family. The New Testament, well, now we do read, you might read in, in 1 Samuel 31 that, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead burned the bodies of Saul and his sons when they were killed by the Philistines. But the commentators note that they might have done that to, to save their bodies being further dishonored by the Philistines who had already uh, beheaded Saul. But they took those burned bodies and then they gave them a burial. And when we come to the New Testament, we also see that burial seems to be the proper way to deal with a, a deceased body. We, realize, we see that uh, John the Baptist's body, after he was beheaded at the direction of Herod, was taken by his disciples and laid in a tomb. Mark 6.29 tells us when his disciples heard, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. In Acts chapter 9, this beloved woman Dorcas has died. And we see that her body is being washed, evidently in preparation for her to be buried. Even the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who had lied to the Holy Spirit and in doing so lied against God and were, were executed by God through Peter, even they were, were given a burial. It says in Acts 5.10, the, uh, the young men carried out and buried her, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. It was one of the early youth group functions, you know, to bury these people. You know, with all the silliness that goes on in youth groups, well, this was an early youth group function. You've got to bury these two, two people. But they buried them, even in, in the dishonor of what they had done. So it appears that, that burial is the, the manner of dealing with the bodies of the dead, which God approves. Now realize that was not guaranteed to a man who had been crucified. In fact, we learned from historians that it was not uncommon for the bodies of the crucified to be left on the cross, either to rot or to be eaten by predatory birds and animals. And so Joseph's request was a proper one. It was consistent with the revealed will of God as to what he wants done with human bodies that have died, consistent with the practices of, of the Jews, which in this case was in line with the will of God. So there's a propriety to his request, but there's also an urgency in Joseph's request. 
We're told in verse 42, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, it was the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. The day on which Jesus died was Friday. It was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath would begin that evening at 6 p.m. The Jewish Sabbath was from evening to evening. And here are several reasons why this request was urgent. It was contrary to Jewish law to leave a dead body on a tree overnight. Uh, I won't take the time to read it, but in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, we're told that it, it was wrong. It was, it was wrong to leave a dead body overnight. And then it would be doubly bad to do so on a Sabbath day. And the Sabbath was coming, especially the Sabbath of a Passover week. And so once the Sabbath officially began, burial preparations would have to cease. Now, we are told that evening had already come. Now, you would think, well, it's too late, but apparently the Jews had two evenings, 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. It is evident that the first evening had come, 3 p.m. They had only till 6 p.m., three-hour time frame, to make the preparations for Jesus' body. So, the preparation had a sense of urgency to it. And then, under this first point, let's note the identity of the person making the request. Normally, the request for the body of someone who has been crucified would be made by a family member, a friend, or a disciple. But consider the case with Jesus. As to his family, we're told in John 7, 5, his brothers were not believing in him. His brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. Well, what about Mary? She was there. Oh, dear friends, that dear woman would have been so traumatized, so emotionally overwrought. There was no way Mary could have made preparation for the body of Jesus. How about his disciples? Well, most of them had fled. One betrayed him. Ten fled, and only John was there. And remember, Jesus had committed Mary into the care of John, and so John was no doubt preoccupied, consoling his mother. So who was there to take care of the body of Jesus? It would appear that no one would be in that position. But God would not further insult his son by having his body thrown as often the bodies of crucified criminals were thrown into a common grave. God would not allow that to happen in his sovereignty. And remember, Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands. He turns it wherever he wills as channels of water. And in God's sovereignty, God raised up a man for such a time as this to take care of the body of his son. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. Now, what do we know about this man? Well, Arimathea was apparently Ramah, the Old Testament city of Samuel, and our text says that he was a member of the council. He was a member of the 70-member Sanhedrin, or Jewish high court. Not only that, he is said to be a prominent member. The, the original word means of good standing. He was a respected member. He would be one of whom others would seek counsel. He was honorable. He was influential. And he was wealthy. Matthew 27.57 calls him a rich man from Arimathea. So he's a rich, influential member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. Further, he's described in our text in verse 43 as waiting for the kingdom of God. 
that would make him one of the relatively few spiritually minded Jewish men. It would put him in the category of the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Put him in the category of Simeon. Remember that, that godly old man when he held the, the baby Jesus in his arms, he said, and the Latin has it, nunc dimittis, now, Lord, you are letting, I can die now because I've, I've seen the Messiah. And there was dear old Anna, that widow, praying in the temple. These were people, relatively few, who understood something of the Old Testament portrayal of the Messiah, and they were waiting for the Messiah, and they recognized him in Jesus, and apparently he was one of these spiritually-minded Jewish men. Matthew 27, 57 also says he had become, also become a disciple of Jesus. Whether he heard Jesus in person or whether he heard about Jesus, Jesus, who said the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand in his coming, repent and believe in the gospel, Joseph heard him or heard of him. And apparently what Jesus was saying about the kingdom coming in him through the gospel resonated with him. And he was a disciple of Jesus. But now in the interest of full disclosure and honesty, we also read this about Joseph in John 19.38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus but a secret one for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. He was a disciple, but at a certain point he was a secret disciple, kind of like Nicodemus, who we're going to see comes on the scene soon. And we understand why. The, the Gospel of John tells us in more than one place that the, the, the Jewish people feared the leaders. What they feared is being kicked out of the synagogue. And so there was a lot of fear, even for those who believed in Jesus. The fear of man crippled them and kept them from publicly acknowledging Jesus. And so we read in John 9:22, his parents, remember the, the man born blind that Jesus healed? His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And then in 1242, we read similarly, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And so Joseph was a disciple, but for a time he was intimidated by the Jews and he did not openly identify with the Nazarene teacher. But now, at a most unlikely time, Joseph throws off the cloak of secrecy, openly declares his allegiance to Jesus by daring to go to Pilate and ask for his body. And that word in the original Talmao means he did not shun through fear. Whatever fear he had before, he laid aside and he said, I'm going public with my discipleship and my allegiance to Jesus Christ. And it might have been fearful. Pilate, after all, hated the Jews. When the Jews said that they wanted Pilate to change the inscription above, he refused to do that. So it might have been a fearful prospect. But um, he overrode that, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to stop here, and uh, I want to ask, what can we learn from this first point? Joseph's request for the body of Jesus. First of all, I think we learn that burial 
is the God-approved way to treat the bodies of those who have died. You see, God has regard for our physical bodies. There's such a thing that was very prevalent in the first century, and it's still around today. Uh, The Greek mindset had this dualism whereby the physical and the material was evil and only the spiritual was good, so that the body was viewed as the prison house of the soul. Christianity does not buy into that dualism. Everything created by God is good. And God created our bodies. They are his workmanship. Psalm 139 says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God so esteems the body that one day he's going to resurrect the body. You've heard me say that in eternity, we're not going to exist as disembodied spirits. We're going to exist as re-embodied spirits. We're going to be resurrected in our, our resurrected, glorified bodies like that of Jesus will be joined to our perfected spirits. And forever on this renovated earth, this new earth, we will serve God not only in spirit, but in bodily form. And sadly, the wicked who do not bow the knee to Jesus they will be resurrected and they will suffer torment in the lake of fire, not only in spirit, but in body. So God has concern for our bodies. And it appears that we need to reflect God's respect for the human body by giving the bodies of those who have died a proper, honorable burial. Now, I just say in passing, is it a problem for God? No matter how the body comes to be dissolved, and decayed, is it a problem for God to reassemble the atoms and the molecules of our bodies and give us a a resurrection body? Of course not. The God who can breathe worlds into existence and simply say, let there be, and there is, he is able to reassemble the burned or decayed bodies of his people and all people and give them a new body. So burial seems to be that which we should esteem. But a second application is we need to be comforted and encouraged by God's sovereign power to work out his purposes in our lives. Lenski, the commentator, says, it seemed as though the sacred body would be dragged away with the soldiers and thrown into a pit with the bodies of the two malefactors. What else could be done? But then Lenski adds, God took care of his son's body in death. And what an amazing way he did it. He actually worked in the heart of a man who was part of the very council that had condemned Jesus to death. A wealthy member of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, became God's chosen instrument to care for the body of God's son. And so we see that that God is sovereign. God has a way. When things seem hopeless and there seems to be no way out of the bind, God will make a way. And I say we can apply that by way of encouragement and comfort to our lives. Because we often get in a bind. And we we don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. We don't see any way out. Maybe it's a financial bind. Lord, how are we going to make ends meet? We've just incurred this debt. How are we going to pay our bills? It may be a vocational bind. Your company may be downsizing. You may be losing your job. Lord, I'm called to provide for my family. Where's a job going to come from? It may be an educational bind. Lord, we've got children growing up. I remember it was so with us. We've got kids and we believe we want to send them to college. 
Nowadays, I'm not sure I would send my children to college, just as an aside, given all that's there. Um, that's a Christian liberty matter. But, but we said, how in the world, on the salary we had, are we going to afford this? How are we going to provide for the education of our children? It may be a locational bind. Lord, we need a house. We need a place to live. Where are you going to provide that? Maybe it's a, a social bind. I, I, we need friends for our, our children. We need fellowship for ourselves. Well, the God who raised up Joseph for such a time as this in his sovereignty and his providence is able to provide for you, sometimes in very unexpected and unlikely ways. Who would have guessed, who would have thunk it, that this Jewish high court member would be the one who cares for the body of Jesus? But then a third application, and this is the longest point by far, we need to see in Joseph the pattern of a true believer in Jesus Christ. I think Joseph provides us a, bat- a pattern for all true believers. What do I mean? Well, Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of my father. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, he says, he who confesses me before men, I will confess before my father who is in heaven. He who denies me before men, I will deny before my father in heaven. Apparently, brothers and sisters, there are no secret disciples in heaven. Now, we see in Joseph's case that there was a time when he was not publicly owning Jesus and acknowledging his discipleship for fear of the Jews. Well, we recognize, don't we, that the process of coming to faith in Christ is just that. It's a process. And there may be fear for a time, temporarily. But there came a time in Joseph's life when he broke the silence. He stepped forward and he said, I believe in him. I'm one of his disciples at great risk to himself. And so with every true disciple of Jesus, there will be wrestlings with the fear of man that we all experience. There will be times where we shrink back from being a bold witness. But when the chips are down, the true believer, by the grace of God, will come through and not disown Jesus. Maybe you've heard of Thomas Cranmer who during the reign of Bloody Mary in England at first recanted. He denied his faith under pressure, and he signed a statement denying his faith in Jesus. Subsequent to that, he was so filled with guilt and so filled with remorse that he renounced his recantation. He was sentenced to die by burning at the stake. And many of you know, he said, let the hand that offended be the first to be burned. And he stuck his hand into the fire. He was so ashamed of having disowned Jesus. We have known Amish friends over the years who became believers, and they come to their first Atningsgame, their first meeting, and the bishop goes around and he asks, has everybody agreed with the Atning, all the rules? You can't have cell phones, you can't have this, you can't have that. And in fear of being put out, they say, Ich bin Enigmit. Did I get that right, David, Lydianne, Merv? Ich bin Enigmit, I'm agreed. But then they go, they go out and they say, I, I wasn't agreed. I don't agree with those rules. And they say, next time Atning Smegame comes around six months later, I'm going to stand. And either they don't show up or they say, Ich bin net Enigmit, I'm not agreed. And they're put out because 
they're not ashamed of Jesus. So many in our day, in countries like Nigeria, there are martyrs who choose rather to die at the hands of their Muslim and other persecutors than to deny Christ. A sword is put to their neck, a gun is put to their head, and they refuse to deny Jesus. Friends, our silly fear of man will be put to shame by that. You're shamed to come forth and identify with Jesus when there are those who are paying with their lives for saying, I believe in Jesus and I will not renounce him. But moving on more briefly, we have Pontius Pilate's release of the body of Jesus. Back to our text, verses 44 and 45. Joseph makes the request, and then we read, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. Now, first consider Pilate's authority. Joseph went to Pilate because Pilate, as the magistrate, had the authority to do what he wanted with the body of Jesus. Apparently, Roman law dictated that such a criminal forfeited all honor in death, even the right to burial. The Roman historian Tacitus says people sentenced to death forfeited their property and were forbidden burial. But now, it wasn't uncommon for family or friends to request the body, but it was up to the magistrate as to whether he granted the release of that body or whether it was thrown in a common grave or left to rot on the, court, on the, on the cross. But there was one major ex- exception. For those convicted of high treason, it took a, a special dispensation by the imperial magistrate for the body to be released. And that was the case with Jesus. He was accused by the Jews of being a rival king to Caesar. That was treason. And so it would have been especially difficult for the body of Jesus to be released. Pilate had the authority. Pilate makes the inquiry. He asks whether Jesus is is dead or not. And um, word comes back from the centurion, the very centurion who came to see he was the son of God. And Jesus had already died. Now, that was unusual. Apparently, it took from two to three days for men to die by crucifixion, sometimes four days. That's rather hard to to fathom, but apparently that was the case. Now, with someone who was nailed to the cross, as was our Lord Jesus, death would have come more quickly. But then we see Pilate's generosity. Pilate grants Joseph the body of Jesus. And we can understand why. Pilate was never convinced that Jesus really was an insurrectionist. He didn't believe the Jews. He only delivered him to be sentenced for fear of his job and being pressured and manipulated by the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. And so Pilate, in his generosity, grants to Joseph the body of Jesus. And briefly, what do we take away from that? Again, I think we look to the sovereign hand of God. Our God is a sovereign God. And the same God who sovereignly worked in the heart of Joseph to turn him to faith and then incline him to go and ask for the body is the same God that worked in Pilate's heart to grant the release of the body to Joseph. Again, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands as channels of water. He turns it wherever he wills. And let me give you three passages that should ground our confidence in the sovereignty of God. I recommend that you memorize these passages if you want to handle on the sovereignty of God over everything. 
that will comfort you and encourage you in so many, on so many occasions. Psalm 135, 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Now listen to this. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. And then providentially, I happen to be reading through Daniel, and just this week I read Daniel chapter 4, where that proud, arrogant king, Nebuchadnezzar, even after Joseph, or rather Daniel, reveals the, the dream to him, he makes a, a huge golden statue of himself. He looks over Babylon. He says, is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built? I call it, he had a bad case of I did it-itis. And God humbles him and causes him to, to, to eat grass and his hair and nails grow long. He gets to the end of that period and listen to this statement. You do well to memorize Daniel 4, 34 and 35. From the lips of this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one is able to stay his hand or to say to him, what have you done? And then another one, one more, Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11 puts it this way. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be accomplished or established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The sovereignty of God over everything, even the hearts of the wicked. Now, friends, that sovereignty is a fearful thing to unbelievers. And if you are sitting here and you are outside of faith in Jesus Christ and outside of his salvation, the sovereignty of God ought to be a frightening reality to you. Because the way you are living now, you are pitting your will against God's. Someone has said that the unbeliever plays God and fights God. And right now you're fighting God. You're saying, I'm going to live according to my thoughts, my worldview. I'm going to live according to my pleasure for my own praise and glory. Friend, you are pitting your little will against the will of Almighty God. But I tell you, with warning, you're not going to win. The will of God gets the capital W. The will of God will win in the end. And you will hear and not be able to resist these words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so the sovereignty of God is a fearful thing if you don't know God, if you're not trusting Jesus Christ. And so I would urge you, plead with you, to yield your will to the will of God. And the will of God is first that you believe in him whom he has sent, Jesus his son. Then you not, need not fear him. Because for us, brothers and sisters, children of God, the sovereignty of God is our greatest source of comfort and encouragement, isn't it? Because we know that Romans 8.20, all things, the worst things that befall us 
are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know because God is sovereign that Romans 8.18 is true, that all the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. For us, the fact that God is a sovereign God ruling over everything, working all things according to the purpose or plan of his will, is our greatest source of comfort. And because we know our God is a God of love and goodness, as Paul says, we accept it as good, acceptable, and perfect. So, finally, Joseph's preparation and burial of the body of Jesus. Joseph requests the body of Jesus. Pilate releases the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph's preparation and burial of the body of Jesus. Verse 46 in our text says, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Notice first Joseph's purchase for the body. Joseph took the lead in taking care of the body of Jesus, and he went out and he purchased some linen, which, as we'll see in a moment, was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. Joseph, at his own expense, bought some linen. Now Joseph's preparation of the body. The body first had to be taken down from the cross. Uh, Joseph no doubt would have needed help for that. Uh, perhaps the Roman soldiers helped him. Remember, the centurion had come to the conclusion this was the Son of God. So perhaps under the centurion's direction, the Roman soldiers helped Joseph take the body of Jesus down. It would have had to be extricated from the nails in his feet and in his hands or wrists. That would have needed to be done. And then it talks about the wrapping in linen cloth. It was the Jewish burial custom to wrap the limbs and the torso tightly in linen cloth. And in between, there would be spices. And to read of those spices, I'm just going to briefly dip into John 19 again. Listen to these words, John 19, 38 to 40. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So to prepare Jesus for burial, linen wrappings, wrapped tightly around his limbs and his torso, mixed in a hundred pounds, a full hundred pounds of spices. And here Nicodemus is on the scene, another formerly secret disciple who goes public after the death of Jesus. And likely these two men, both members of the Jewish high court, collaborated, maybe they even prepared in advance to care for the body of Jesus. The head would be un left unwrapped and covered separately with a cloth. Likely the body was washed, as we see in Acts 9 with the body of Dorcas. Commentators speculate perhaps it was washed in wine. But then finally, Joseph's entombment of the body. After body, the body was prepared in that way, and it had to be done hastily because the Sabbath was coming at 6 o'clock. They had only three hours. Then... The body was laid, it says, they laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. Matthew 27, 60 says it was his own new tomb. John 19 says, 
in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. No one had been put there yet. Now, obviously, Joseph wasn't there yet. But because tombs were expensive, often more than one person would be put in one tomb. And there may have been as many as as three. But this was a virgin tomb. It had not experienced the stench of death, the tomb into which Jesus' body was placed. There would have been a, a vestibule, which led into a main chamber, and then three places for um, bodies, each one cut out of the walls. And then the stone was rolled in front. I don't know what you picture when you picture the stone that was miraculously moved away. It was not a boulder. It was a disc, kind of like a, um, a millstone. And they would cut a groove in the stone at the base of the uh, tomb, and then they would roll that in, obviously leaning against the tomb. We're told that perhaps one man could have pushed the stone into that place, but it would have taken the strength of several men to remove it. And uh, it was Joseph's own tomb. And apparently it was close to the place where Jesus was crucified. And because time was of the essence, that may have been the reason why he chose to entomb Jesus in his own tomb. And so the body is in place, the work is finished, the men bend low and exit the tomb and roll the stone disc downhill until it stops at the entrance to the tomb, sealing the tomb. Jesus Christ is now dead and buried. The climax of his redemptive work is still to come, but we have to wait for that. Let me close with some final applications. What do we make of this prophecy about Jesus' burial? Brothers and sisters, the greatest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 53. And it amazingly says so much in prophecy and prediction of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, we read of his substitutionary death. Verses 4 and 5, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The substitutionary death of Jesus is prophesied. The silent suffering of Jesus is prophesied in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, He did not open his mouth. Exactly true of Jesus. The unjust judgment is spoken of in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? And then listen to verse 9 of this prophecy. His grave was assigned with wicked men. He hung on the cross between two wicked malefactors. The next phrase, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. He was put in the tomb of a rich man. Friends, this was written 700 years before the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. Malefactors, wicked men, and a rich man in his death. Friends, the Bible's the word of God. Every word of it. 
And I urge you to believe every word of it, especially the gospel, which tells you you're a sinner, God is holy, and you need a savior, and Jesus is that savior. But then finally, I want us to just note the theological significance of Jesus' burial. Like I already intimated, one significance is the burial of Jesus gave proof that he really died, which gives credence to the fact that he was really raised from the dead. He didn't just recover in the, in the, you know, from his swooning in the cool of the tomb. He was really dead because he was really buried with 100 pounds of spices and wrapped tightly in linen cloth. So his burial proves his death, which validates his resurrection. But I close with one other application. The burial of Jesus has very pointed application to the new life that God has given you if you are a Christian. In Romans chapter 3 and 5, Paul talks about the gospel of grace, all about grace. And in chapter 5, he says, where sin abounds, grace does superabound. No matter how big your mountain of sin, God has a bigger mountain of grace to cover it. But then he comes into chapter 6, and he anticipates somebody reasoning, well, shall we continue in sin? That grace might increase. God likes to show grace on sin. Well, let's just keep sinning, so give God an opportunity to show grace. And then he has a strong Greek negative. May it never be. And then he goes on to say, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The burial of Jesus Christ physically is parallel to the burial of the old man, the old person that you once were as a believer, as an unbeliever. As Jesus died and was buried, your old person, verse 6 says, the old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus was once alive in his body. His body throbbed with life. He spoke, he taught, he healed, he commanded, he exhorted, he comforted. Life and activity pulsated through his body. And at one point, sin and flesh pulsated through your life and dominated you, and you were given to the deeds or the weeds of the flesh. But now we see that the body of Jesus is drained of its life, and he comes to lie in a tomb. His eyes no longer perceive, his ears no longer hear, his hands no longer touch and heal, the tongue no longer teaches, but he lays there ashen white, motionless, cold, and buried. And that is a picture of your old man, the person you once were. Not that your sin is eradicated, but the old man, the domination of sin, is dead and buried. So that, in parallel to the resurrection, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what a Christian is. Not someone merely forgiven and given a clean slate, but someone who has been radically changed so that sin no longer has dominion over us. Is that true of you? If so, you're a believer, delight in that. If not, it can become true of you if you will but humble yourself, repent, put your faith in Jesus. He will not only forgive you, but he will change you. Your sins and your sin nature will be dead and buried, and he will raise you again to newness of life. Let's pray and then sing a final hymn.
Father, thank you for your sovereign rule over everything. Thank you for the way that in your sovereignty you granted Pilate to release the body of your son and you wonderfully worked in the heart of this unlikely man, this Jewish leader, to become a disciple and to give your son a proper burial. And thank you that his death and burial is a picture of the death to the old person that we once were, that we might walk in newness of life. Grant it, please, to those who still are in the grave clothes of their sin and old nature. We ask